Before we start, I've got a number that you can call or text with questions and comments. Hit me up at 720-772-7988 and leave a message. There's a few messages that I'm going to be responding to in an upcoming episode, so keep these questions coming. For the eyes of the world, now look into space, to the moon, and to the planets beyond. This is The Space Shot, episode 425, Exploring Ocean Worlds with Melissa Ugelo. I'm John Mulnix. So this is the official start for season four of The Space Shot, uh, the Apollo 13 part two episode that I had originally planned for this year is going to be moved to the 51st anniversary of that mission. Um, unfortunately, this year's episode, um, how I had it planned, it didn't happen uh, due to COVID-19. A lot of plans were canceled and I had some special things in mind. Um, I'm working on these ideas still for the 51st anniversary of the mission. So we'll be sharing all of that audio with all of you next April. Now for something a bit farther out in the solar system, let's head to the ocean worlds. When you think of an ocean, Earth is probably what comes to mind, but our planet isn't the only world with water. NASA notes that moons, dwarf planets, and comets can sustain water in various forms, from ice to water vapor. There's also a lot of excitement about the moons that orbit Jupiter and Saturn, since some of these worlds potentially have water that exists in a liquid state. Last week I had the opportunity to speak with Melissa Ugelo about her work on Titan, and instead of another long introduction, let's jump right into that conversation that explores some of these incredible moons in our outer solar system. Today I'm talking with Melissa Ugelo. She is an analytical chemist and she's currently studying Titan. Uh, her education has taken her all across the United States. I think you ended up being here in Colorado uh, at CU Boulder there for a little while from what I've seen. Uh, Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you've been doing since you've been a postdoc and now the work that you're doing with NASA? Yeah, so I am currently at, I have a postdoc at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center where I study Titan's stratospheric ice clouds. Um, Titan has a really complex stratosphere cloud system, and um, it was really um, explored more with Cassini-Sears, uh, the composite infrared spectrometer, where we really saw just how complex it is. Um, for a bit of background about me, though, uh, I come from more of a traditional chemistry background, and I never once thought I'd ever be doing planetary science, but I'm so happy with that change in my path. Uh, so I went to college at Muhlenberg um, in Allentown, Pennsylvania. It's a really small liberal arts school where I studied chemistry. That was my major. Um, but then by the end of college, I felt like I wanted more of a environmental related field for um, like I wanted to still study chemistry, but apply it in an environmental context. And so I was looking at a bunch of schools and I saw the University of Colorado at Boulder had an atmospheric chemistry department. And that was mostly people who study atmospheric chemistry of earth related to climate change. And I was really excited about that. But then when I got there, um, the person who I wanted to do my graduate work with, Maggie Tolbert, she only had projects available to study Titan's atmosphere. And I wasn't really sure, but then I was like, okay, I'll try it, see what happens. And then once I 
yeah, like once I got started, I, there was no turning back. I really, I really fell in for it. Um, and I love it. And so I had during my, uh, graduate school towards the end, I had an internship at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Um, this was with Melissa Trainer, And that's um, really when I decided that this was the path that I really wanted to take, seeing all the different types of ways that scientists were involved in missions and all different levels um, really was what motivated me to come back there for my postdoc. And I was really fortunate that my proposal was selected and I was able to come back for the postdoc. That's fantastic. You know, I- life seems to have a way of working out all right in the end. And I mean, the Cassini Huygens mission to Saturn and Titan, even though it ended what, you know, th- almost three years ago at this point, mm-hmm. the amount of data that was gathered by those spacecraft is going to be analyzed for years and probably decades to come. So they have um, still proposal calls where you can submit a proposal to still do data analysis and I'm not sure how much longer that's going to go on for, but there's still plenty of data that we have that we can still study. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, that was one of the longest running missions, so I'm sure there's just a trove to sift through. Um, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about Titan here in a little bit, just because that's your area of expertise and you know, what you're researching. But can you give us just a little bit um, of an overview of ocean worlds generally? Um, NASA's got you know some really cool content that's been coming out over the past couple of weeks on ocean worlds. Can you tell us what is an ocean world? Yeah, so an ocean world is any object really in our solar system or even exoplanets as well that has an ocean. So our easiest one to explore is Earth. Um, we have an ocean, so that makes us an ocean world. But there's also a lot of bodies in the outer solar system that have subsurface oceans. And so that has really changed our idea of when we're looking for the possibility of life on different bodies in our solar system, because we're used to, well, if it's in the habitable zone, that means there's liquid water on the surface. But what if there's liquid water subsurface? What what does that mean? And so there's numerous moons, um, even Pluto might be an ocean world, but there's a lot of different places that are making us question what we really think about when we're thinking about where we should look for possible signs of life. And there's also places that were past ocean worlds. Um, Mars likely had liquid water on its surface and same with Venus in its ancient past. Well, that's, you know, where your chemistry background really comes in to, you know, play a, a great role for, you know, helping you out with what you're looking into. There's a lot of things that can, you know, make an ocean world habitable for life. Can you talk about those like extreme environments? What are the different like um, chemical processes that can go into, you know, potentially making a world habitable for life? So there's a lot of really fun reactions that can happen when you have really hot water interacting with rock material, um, and so this can make certain species of different like gases or minerals that can be used by life. Um, so at that bottom of the Earth's ocean and in hydrothermal systems, there is a whole host of organisms that can uh, live down there because they're able to use this energy, um, well, th- these molecules as chemical energy. So they never see the sun, but they can still survive and make their own energy based on the chemical reactions that are occurring around them and what chemicals they release. And so um, we see similarities in extreme environments here that we do possibly also in the outer solar system moons as well um, with possible hydrothermal systems. We don't know for a fact um, about Enceladus, but there 
is likely possible um, hydrothermal systems there as well. It's very um, a really hot topic right now to study more about Enceladus's subsurface ocean. That's what's so fantastic just about all the missions that are going on right now. You know, like the, the Voyager missions back in the 80s, there's just, you know, a lot of publicity. And then obviously, like the Apollo program, people tend to think that, you know, we've passed the golden age of space flight and space exploration. But really, with what's going on with robotic missions right now, we're in the thick of just of a time where we're going to probably start to fundamentally transform our understanding of the solar system. Um you know, what's, what's been one of your favorite things, I guess, to, that's uh, come out over the past couple of years about a discovery that's been made? Yeah, that's a good question. I, well, I guess I am biased to Titan. Um, okay. <laughs> but I am very interested in just learning about all the different processes going on in the atmosphere. And something that uh, is motivating my work is that one of the big discoveries with Cassini-Sears is that um, Titan's ice clouds are actually predominantly these co-condensed ices. So traditionally you think about clouds where you have one vapor, it reaches saturation and then it condenses and forms a chemically independent ice cloud. Like it's not, it's just one compound. But in Titan's stratosphere, what we're seeing is that there's actually more complexity to it. You get into these altitude regions where uh, multiple chemical compounds can simultaneously condense and form this mixed ice which we call co-condensed ice. And you might not necessarily intuitively think that's that important or exciting, but what we've learned, um, especially with lab work, is that the, the co-condensed ices, they have different properties than what you would expect based on their pure counterparts. And something that is really interesting to me as an experimentalist is that a lot of these properties you can't predict unless you physically study them in the lab. And so this is important for Titan because these, these ices, they have um, spectral features in infrared. So um, briefly with infrared spectroscopy, if you have a chemical compound, it could be a gas or solid or liquid, it will react with infrared light in a unique way based on its um, chemical bonds. So these bonds vibrate and they have a unique signature for each individual compound. And so what we're seeing is that a mixed ice when you look at the spectral region where they have their more bulk structure vibrations, they're different than the independent compounds, what those spectral features look like. And so we just have a lot more questions about what's really happening. What kind of, what, what does this mean about the actual structure of this ice? And so um, I'm, I'm biased to that being something that I'm found very exciting because there's so many more questions that I have that I want to continue studying, but it's, it's really interesting because these ices really um, have an important role in the thermal structure of Titan's stratosphere. So if you look in the polar stratospheric regions where um, these ice clouds are forming, then the winter poles, you can actually see that these ice clouds, which cause cooling, um, they can, they, there's a secondary thermal inversion where these ice clouds form um, in the polar winter regions. And so they have a profound influence on Titan's atmosphere. And it's just, it's so fascinating to study this. That sounds really cool. What kind of influence then do those processes have on the surface of Titan? I remember reading that, you know, there's, there's ice there, water ice, that's apparently like as hard as granite on the surface of Titan. Do these clouds and, you know, like how does Titan's atmosphere then uh, affect the surface of the moon? So... 
most of the clouds, these ices, they'll end up on the surface. And so something that also is, we need to study this more, um, and it motivates my research as well, is that if these um, ices that we're seeing, these co-condensed ices, have unique properties compared to the individual counterparts, then what does that mean that when it gets to the surface, how are these going to continue to react and age? And can we predict what kind of reactions would happen? Like, can we predict what new photo, like if there's any photochemistry happening or any type of other chemical reactions happening, we might not really know what to expect um, compared to if we just had this independent ice reacting with this independent ice would make this. We, but we have to really experiment with this in the lab and see if it changes um, the actual products based because these are co-condensed. Things just might take more energy to occur than what we expect. And so that could dictate then what type of chemical reactions can occur. How does this research with what you're doing with Titan and other worlds in the solar system eventually, you know, how does that translate to you know, applications here um, on Earth? So we actually kind of, the reverse is actually something that we've been looking at. So we understand cloud formation and how aerosols impact cloud formation on Earth really well. And so we've been trying to use that as motivation to study a little bit more about how aerosol in Titan's atmosphere influences cloud formation. Um, oh, actually, there's another example of how we can use Earth's atmosphere to help us understand um, the clouds in Titan's atmosphere because uh, do you know with the polar stratosphere clouds, how they play a role in the ozone destruction, giving the catalytic destruction of ozone like a surface to react on to make... I haven't read about that, no. <laughs> okay, well, so there's actual possibilities that something similar could be happening in Titan's atmosphere with that solid-state photochemistry making different types of clouds by the irradiation of um, these co-condensed clouds. But going back to your question... Yeah, so how Titan can teach us a little bit about Earth, um, the context that I've studied this in is that the, so kind of thinking about Earth billions of years ago. And so Titan's atmosphere is mostly methane and nitrogen, but Earth billions of years ago was also probably mostly methane and nitrogen, but in addition to that, carbon dioxide. And so learning more about the chemistry in Titan and it's because it's more of a reducing atmosphere, just like the early Earth was, we can apply what we know about Titan to understand more about Earth billions of years ago as well and the types of chemistry that could have been occurring in Earth's atmosphere then. That is wild. <laughs> or for all of the research that you've done then, you know, so far on Titan, you've talked about like the co-condensing ices. Has there been anything else that's just stuck out to you as, I don't know, just plain cool? Um, yeah, so... My last paper from grad school was really fun for me. It was um, targeting the ion chemistry that could have occurred in early Earth's atmosphere as well um, during aerosol formation. And we found some pretty interesting results that we can see that as an atmosphere starts to accumulate the amount of molecular oxygen it has, the type of chemistry at a certain point just like hits a switch and changes over from being mostly like reducing to then immediately just mostly oxidizing. And there's just like, it's like you hit a wall and then it just completely switches over. It's not so much gradual. And the types of compounds that we see when we make that switch have a lot of prebiotic potential. And so it's important to consider that in the big picture of Earth's evolution and life. Um, and so that was, that was a really exciting project. 
Well, and this is, I, I think this might be related then to something uh, that you gave in a presentation a couple of weeks ago. You know, eventually our son's going to become a red giant. What would happen then with Titan if, you know, the, the habitable zone of Earth, as it were, of uh, our solar system, as it were, expands out to the orbit of uh, Jupiter and Saturn? What would happen with Titan at that point? So the exciting part for that would be if Titan is in the habitable zone, there's all this surface ice, water ice, and that would start to melt. And then on top of that, you have all these organics as well that already are on the surface but continue to be deposited. Um, Titan's aerosol and the clouds are organic material that sediments eventually to the surface. And so the mixing of water and these organic materials typically lead to really interesting prebiotic chemistry um, that could potentially be important for the evolution of life. And so we don't obviously know what will happen and if the timescales will allow it to happen immediately, um, but it's really a really good thought experiment to think about, you know, if we have all this water, because there's going to be a lot of it when it starts to melt, mm -hmm. and then we have all these organics that we've been accumulating since, you know, the beginning of when Titan's chemical activity began, what's going to happen? Um, yeah, so it's, there's a lot of potential there. Well, hopefully, you know, somebody will be around to at least figure out what goes on. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, at that point, Earth will no longer exist. <laughs> Our solar system will start probably with Mars. It, it, whatever humans are around will probably be yeah. plugged into a computer <laughs> at that point. Um, yeah. that's, that's really fun. You know, Melissa, with where you've gotten in your career, I mean, it sounds like you've just been part of some amazing teams so far. What's, what's some advice that you would give to high school and even college students looking to pursue a, you know, science, a field in science, a field in planetary, um, science. So for high schoolers, I definitely would say, that just keep asking questions and staying excited about all this because um, the reason why I wanted to study chemistry was because of my high school teachers in chemistry. I had um, like the high school level course of chemistry and then I took AP chemistry my senior year of high school. And that really, I just fell in love with the topic and um, that made me want to major in chemistry in college. And so just kind of like exploring what science classes are offered in high school, I think can help you really try to figure out like what, what are your interests and if you can see yourself doing this in college. Um, some other things to consider, probably this is probably mostly for college students, is that when you get to college and you think you're interested in a STEM field, take all the math and science classes that you can that are related to your um, field, but uh, also, Something that I wish that I learned or was told was that computer science is also really important um, to learn. A lot of science is done um, that a lot of the science that is done now, like you still you need a pretty strong programming background. And hmm. uh, taking these classes could really help set you up to be successful in that. Um, and then some other things that I always suggest to people in college who have asked is try to get involved in undergrad research as soon as you can. Um, this really helps you, I think, set you up for a successful career. You doing independent research and learning how to read papers and that um, is a learned skill. And so starting that earlier sets you up to be um, more successful in this in the long run. And it also helps you learn how to navigate a lab a little bit better. And so you might be able to be 
it'll be more familiar with this when you go to graduate school. Um, it's not going to be all just so new to you when you get there. Um, but then also doing research, not only at your university, but at another location, it's also really useful because you might be in a program that's chemistry or biology or physics, but, and the research you're doing is more traditional for that topic. Mm -hmm. But had you, if you go to somewhere like NASA and you do an internship there, you might be able to get a little taste of what it's like to do planetary science. And while that is related to your field, you just might not have that opportunity to do that research back at your university because it might not exist. And so it helps broaden not only your network of people, but your network of, well, not network, but your background of different types of research topics as well. I think that's great advice. Yeah. Take, you got to taste a lot of different things as it were. To yeah. Figure yeah. Out. Just, you know, find all the different opportunities because there's a lot out there. Um, and then I think lastly, I would recommend also a support system. Um, this could be like a mentor that's like your teacher or a professor or an academic advisor, or research advisor, just someone that you can talk to about what you're interested in going forward. Um, these people have already probably gone through this. And so if you would tell them, this is what I'm interested in, you know, how, how does this work? How do I get to this point? They'll have a lot of advice for you and help nudge you in the right direction. And then I think this is also especially true for women and minorities in the STEM fields, because you might look around in your classroom and a lot of people don't necessarily look like you. And so you might not feel very welcomed, but I have always found that having a support system like this with mentors, like they really, they're there for you and they're ready to help you and listen to you and just make you feel welcomed in that community as well. Um, and so really identifying a good mentor in the beginning is really helpful because it, you know, just having someone that's ready to be there for you and support you through all of it is really important. That's fantastic advice. Yeah. It's, I, I was lucky enough to have two professors when I was going through college that I got to know and I got to do some fun independent studies with them. And it, it helped open up opportunities that otherwise wouldn't have presented themselves. So I a hundred percent agree on, you know, finding a mentor, finding that professor that you can, you know, just kind of get to know and become friends with. I mean, it's, it, it's yeah. things that those relationships that I built in college, I, I still message those profs from time to time. I, I helped one out with a space history uh, syllabus for one of her classes. So I think that that's great advice. You know, they are really important. And this even can include high school because I was actually just talking about this with someone earlier when I was applying for college and I was also taking AP chemistry. And that's when I was thinking about how this is possibly what I want to do. I had met with my guidance counselor and said, this is kind of what I'm interested in. I don't really know what I'm supposed to do with this bit of knowledge that I have now. Um, and so he was like, well, let's go down to the science department chair and let's talk to her. And so we went down there unannounced and she opened up a book. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was a book of like all the colleges and what they specialized in. I have no idea what this book was exactly. But then she helped me narrow down what exactly I was interested in and what schools were well known for what and um, what classes I should be taking. And then she's the one who told me, consider doing undergrad research, not your freshman year, but start looking once for your sophomore year. Um, to start getting into undergrad research then. And so that was really useful for me for moving forward um, in my career, even just in college. And so your high school uh, guidance counselors and teachers are a really useful group of mentors as well. 
Yeah, I was I was lucky enough in my high, high school that was actually my grandma <laughs> way back oh, in the day. Awesome. So, yeah, I 100% agree. Going to work with one of the you know the career coaches or counselors, they can really help point people in the right direction. So, 100% agree on that one as well. <laughs> well <laughs> Your grandma probably pretty invested in your future. <laughs> they do, they do. I mean, that's, uh, that is what they're there for. And a lot of them, you know, it's not just a job to them. They really, truly do want to help kids. You know, yeah. I, th- I think it's also really easy when you're in school and the topic's a little hard, you might not necessarily like, like, oh, this teacher is, or this professor is, it's really challenging class, but they also sign up for this knowing that they're going to mentor students as well. And so being, like knowing that and knowing that, you know, they're expecting you to want to talk to them about your future and they're ready to be a mentor, um, I think is important to consider. Definitely. Definitely. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for all the info. Um, it was great having you on the podcast and hopefully again in the future, we'll be able to have you on when there's more things happening around Saturn. Yeah. And thank you for having me. This was fun. That's it for this time. Be sure to subscribe to The Space Shot so you never miss an episode. I'd also love it if you could leave a review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, anywhere you listen to this podcast, really. Reviews help more people find out about the show, and I definitely appreciate it. I've got a call-in number that you can call or text with questions and comments. Hit me up at 720-772-7988 and leave a message. I'll be sure to get back to you. You can also connect with me and the podcast online. All of the social media links are in the podcast show notes. Until next time, I'm John Wilmix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.